Hey folks, welcome back to Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies. I'm Tim Lindsay. Christian and I recorded this next episode you're about to hear uh, actually at the end of last year when we were deciding whether or not we wanted to do a Rolling Stones podcast. And the thing that was just brand new had just landed on our shelves for reviewing and uh, discussion was the Totally Stripped set, which, uh, as some of you may know, compiles three shows from the Stones' 1995 European tour, the Paris Olympia, the Brixton Academy in London, and the Amsterdam Paradiso. These shows were previously uh, excerpted, and uh, parts of them ended up on the CD and vinyl that the Stones put out in 1995 called Stripped. So we'll talk a little bit about how that release relates to the totally stripped uh, expanded version. Uh, As well, we go a little bit into more broadly what the Stones were up to in the 90s and how that relates to this release. We also talk a little bit about Exile on Main Street for some reason, uh, or at least the various remastered versions of it. Also, new at the time, we didn't actually have a chance to hear it yet before we recorded this podcast, so we sort of basically talk about it in general terms, is the Rolling Stones in mono box set. And without any further ado, here's Christian and myself talking about Totally Stripped and related releases. Hope you enjoy. Uh, So, should we talk about uh, the greatest Rolling Stones release probably since A Bigger Bang? I'm not sure why it hasn't caught on in the public consciousness the way it's as exciting as it is for you and me, probably because we were already fans of the 90s Stones. And I also should say for our audiences that I very much brainwashed Tim Lindsay into accepting the vast counter narrative I constructed yeah. about the Rolling Stones. And well, the, the, it began actually in the Bigger Bang era because I, this happened, it, it just fell into my lap that I was stationed right next to the Rolling Stones right as they were about to embark on that tour. And I got to hear them like up close. That was like the beginning of this sort of come to Jesus moment. Uh, so we've got now access to the the largest catalog of 90s Stones recordings in the highest possible quality in the form of this new box set, the totally stripped set. Yeah. And that's, it's a game changer. No, it is. And, and I, I, I have satisfied myself, maybe not anyone else, but I've satisfied myself that the original intention for stripped itself was either at least one film in the spirit of ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones in an attempt to kind of, finally do it right Mm -hmm. because i mean to say nothing of the actual capture medium uh in in digital uh video and audio uh you couldn't make time codes sync you know so you get the magically changing guitar where it's like i know that bitch isn't played on the open g telecaster whoever you edited this you know and you see that in gimme shelter a lot because there's just no way to sync so they would just cut around and try to make something kind of it's a montage rather than an actual attempt it's like a french new wave performance Uh, yeah (laughs) jean-luc godard direct well he actually did make a stones movie and it's terrible that's right Uh, he did and it's not not very good not very good at all um but uh the reason I think that this is so meaningful for me is, as you say, because uh, that's the period that I got into the Stones. The Love is Strong video was on TV all the time. I mean, yeah. I, I think, like, I uh, don't know how many people know this, but I actually share a dentist with Mick Jagger. My ass has been in the same seat his ass has been in. 
Uh, so ladies form an order of Q. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, and, and I remember seeing somebody there in a steel wheels that I, that I now recognize as being the steel wheels shirt and, and right, somebody talking. Right, multiple colored tongues on yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, somebody talking about that. It's actually, I think I have that shirt now. But um, the, I remember somebody talking, oh, yeah, I think, you know, he goes here or whatever. And actually the story was that, I have a very good story about this. The, the, the reason he ended up uh, at my dentist is because uh, it's also Michael Cole's dentist. And right. one of the uh, diamonds in Mick Jagger's teeth fell out. A lot of people don't know this. It was an emerald for a while, and Keith made fun of him, said, said that he had a piece of spinach in his teeth. So he had it replaced with a diamond. And um, so, he said, so Michael Cole says to Mick, oh, go to my dentist. She's the best. He goes there, and uh, she's like, oh, yeah, you know what? Actually, my dad's a, a jeweler. And we'll see if he can get you. And she calls him up and says, you know, have you got uh, this, car- this carrot, this cut, whatever? It's for Mick Jagger. And her dad says, is he good for it? <laughs> Which there is one of my favorite stories ever. Um, but so the point is that this was all happening in the early 90s around the time, you know, Steel Wheels, Voodoo Lounge. And the Voodoo Lounge tour is also so poorly documented. Mm. Uh, the Voodoo Lounge live in Miami a VHS tape that I had um, had some of the worst audio. I mean, I can't, and I actually, it's so out of print. I haven't seen it in forever. It's probably never going to be restored because they no. probably don't have the multi-tracks uh, or they are. And the mix. Yeah, you're right. I've, I've listened to that mix and it's just garbage, but there's also the, there's the, uh, the other pay-per-view from that. It's the Jersey show where they intercut it with a bunch of bizarre, like backstage Fantasia with that, roadie guy i thought you were ronnie yeah that thing yeah yeah yeah. oh my god that's pretty garbage as well (laughs) so those were like up until now the only existing sort of pro shot documents of that tour and now we've got three whole theater shows from the the european tour yeah and my my belief is that that if they weren't trying to go for ladies and gents that the idea was to do something more like four flicks but that at the time there wasn't really a delivery method that was good enough and the evidence of that if you ask me is the stripped cd-rom because uh this is going to be really fascinating for fans of digital media but the issue with the stripped cd-rom if you know if you bought stripped back when it was relatively new um Mm. or bought it secondhand like the original pressing yeah if you look at the original pressing it it says you know has the quick time logo and everything and it says Put this in your CD-ROM drive and, you know, get access to all this bonus content. Yeah. Must have Windows 3.1 or better. There was an exact series of specifications, and apparently because they were made in the Netherlands, by Philips, I assume, it was basically incompatible with pretty much every CD-ROM on the market except for, like, one or two. And as a result, they got cold feet, were worried about it, and just pulled it. So the the DVD, the, the, the CD-ROM content... It's not your fault that you couldn't access it if you tried because it was pulled. Uh, but they, I guess, they didn't have time to change uh, the the graphics and writing. I thought it was only I thought it was only recently that they recalled it because so called the remasters that came out about five six years ago, it's exactly the same mastering on stripped, but there's just no enhanced content at all. Oh yeah, no. But but from what I understand, there was never any uh, enhanced content for North American buyers. 
Oh, really? And it was only it was it was just because they were they just didn't have time to correct it before it went mm. before it got to press. Because I've actually heard it's something of a an urban legend. I mean, I saw I can't even remember where I saw it, but I saw a tiny snip of uh, Keith and Ronnie playing resonators on some CGI yeah. porch. Uh, yeah. And data miners or whomever have found all of the performances that ended up on that, and that's where the stripped companion bootleg comes from. And and speaking of which, that's the only thing that I think this box set is missing. Is right, those outtakes. Better mixes yeah. of those. Um, those the, the, you it's know, the like, Toshiba EMI studio in Japan where they recorded all that stuff. There's a bit of it in the documentary, but... Most the most of the recordings that are on that bootleg are outtakes from that session. Yeah, and then when you when you get into to when we're getting into the slight criticisms we have the the disc of audio material that they put out uh, is interesting, and, but it's not actually that great to listen to because there are a lot. This of, is also as I discovered, it's up on the streaming services as well. Oh, interesting. The standard CD. It's on Tidal and Spotify, I would imagine. You could probably buy it on iTunes if you can still buy things on iTunes. The the audio content, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to hear the first time that they ever played Shine a Light live. And what's extra neat about it is that it's not as good as the one that's on the, the CD that we all know, but it's still very, very good. Because I've we've I think you have been there too when they actually try to do something for the first time ever. And it doesn't doesn't always go so well, and yeah. the, the the similarly similarly the acoustic where the the version of like a Rolling Stone where Keith is playing the acoustic from one of the earlier nights, also interesting but yeah. not good. Um, and those things are there for archival purposes, and I think that you yeah, and it's I for curiosity. Yeah, you and I were were critical of um, some of the Exile on Main Street stuff and some of the some girls bonus material. Because right. if you are a bootleg person, you heard it all, and yeah. if you I mean, aren't, I don't think that that's actually a valid well, critique. But like, no, no, it's true. Just... But but the thing is that if you the, the the issue isn't isn't so much that as if you are not a bootleg person, then that it's also kind of of no interest into you. If you don't have that kind of all-consuming academic interest in the band, then hearing something like Title Five. Uh, front or stuff like that 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 is not really relevant to the making of Exile on Main Street and you know there what's that one Blood Red Wine like there's tons of stuff that the bootleggers that we all knew existed like the demo yeah. of Let It Loose played on the piano uh, from the Beggar's Banquet sessions um, I presumably right after Brian Jones died um, and, uh, the blood red wine and, and various other ones that we know are out there and that we know are germane to XL on main street because they were done at Olympic in, in during the five year period that that material is drawn, drawn from. And it just seems kind of a weird editorial decision to do that. And I know everyone loved that version of loving cup, but it's right. only, it's only interesting to me. Like I would want that honky tonk woman album that, um, Don Wass was talking about where it's every single iteration of the song and you can hear the whole progression of it. I'd love it to buy that, but I really don't think most people would be interested in it. So to me, it was more less of an issue of, oh, I have this because I'm a bootlegger guy. It's more like, I don't know who they're trying to no. appeal to. And it, it's, it's really only going to be relevant to, as you say, like a small select group. Yeah, that, that, that's my concern. I would have just rather actually had... 
I would love it if you could buy those if when you bought the set. Like I just want CD audio of all the the shows. Um, right. That's my priority. I wanted it more like the the Tokyo Dome kind of thing where you just get the whole thing. Um, yeah. And. And I realize that might be difficult, but, you know, a digital download card, something like that, that seems possible. But again, we're younger. The audience is typically older. They might not want to deal with that. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's got to be tough. But should we talk about why we like it and why the 90s Stones is actually the best period of the Stones? Yeah, we don't have to get too deep in, in Iraqi into it. I just think that the 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 approach to those shows where it's a set list that does have a couple of things for non-diehards you know they're going to play a couple of tracks from the new record and you know they're going to play a couple of 60s things that you'll recognize no matter who you are and then they're going to play a bunch of rarities and deep cuts and things that they haven't necessarily done ever before yeah there's this there's this sort of different theme and um you know the voodoo lounge tour was so eclectic in its set lists uh, you know Opening with "Not Fade Away" into "Tumbling Dice," satisfaction right. comes sixth. You know, um, yeah. satisfaction should really be an act break, uh, if not opener if or not cl- closer or yeah. closer. Um, yeah. And you know, I think that that's it's bold for a band to take their most famous song and put it and treat it like any other song, just like okay, and where does this go? Um, similarly, they did that on Four Flex with "Start Me Up" coming second. Like you know, that's kind of mm-hmm. weird. Um, but it's, it's, it, I appreciate the eclecticism of it, but to, to take it back to, you know, the, they open the strip shows with honky tonk women, then not fade away. And then they'll do, um, a little more of the, maybe a few more recognizable tunes. Then they'll go into like an, a, an acoustic mini set. Right. And then you'll hear like the, the sheer anachronism of knowing that I go wild was played in the same set as all the stuff that you hear on stripped is is fascinating for me and uh they really they really tear that number up pretty much every time yeah, they it's, play it's it. the most bombastic performance of it i think is that one where i think it's the paris one where they all just come to the front of the stage and are just simultaneously I think they do that for actually all of them but they it's probably like a rehearsed bit from the tour yeah and 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 also speaking of which it's so much looking back on that period uh, it seems like Daryl Jones and Lisa Fisher and Bernard Fowler actually had a lot more to do in the show. And Lisa right. always gets her her feature with Gimme Shelter, but she used to do, they used to be these sort of little um, skits in Miss You, or yeah. she has her little bit in Monkey Man. And uh, even as late as the No Security Tour, Daryl and Lisa would come up and do the woo-woos on Sympathy for the Devil or do a dance routine for something else. Like, they were part that, of... That still continued up and through, I think, through the 50 and Counting Tour, where they would, like, at least come to the front of the less stage. Less and but, less. If you watch yeah. in No Security, um, there's, a, there's a comp of No Security footage synced to a bootleg of my first ever Rolling Stones show. Right, the Toronto show, yeah. Well, the, bootleg, the bootleg is called While the Wind Blows Over Toronto. If you can find it, it is actually really good, like the definitive no-security bootleg, I think. Until and they put out a real one from the archives. I would apparently, love... there's a pro shot one in, in the archives that may come out from 99. If there, if there is a... That would be like my, my rosebud. <laughs> <laughs> 
That would be really, really great to have. Right. And especially if it were the Toronto show, because it is pretty much universally accepted as the optimal point of performance, bootleg quality, um, so on and so forth. And also, they were hot. You know, there, was, there was very little break between the end. There was like 96 they took off, but 96 they probably, probably spent half the time uh, starting Bridges to Babylon. So they had been consistently, I mean, especially if you count Keith's solo work and mm-hmm. Wandering Spirit and stuff, they had all been consistently working since talk is cheap, not all together necessarily, but since the the, the respective solo were tours in in the eighties, yeah. at the end of World War Three, um, they more or less consistently worked all the way through to ninety nine, and that's why I get in so much trouble saying that the Stones were actually at their best in terms of playing and bringing you a show and actually the quality of show that you hear in terms of like guitars being in tune, show starting on time, production value, direction. You know, there's none of that, oh, a few few strings broken, a few hearts busted, you know, <laughs> between friends or whatever. There's none of that. There's no screwing right. around. You know, they didn't even have proper like backline crew and stuff in the 70s. It's a totally yeah. different story. So and then it, it the pendulum swung completely in the other direction for like Tokyo Dome, which is like a four-hour onslaught without any break or chance to catch your breath. Yeah, it's, it, it, they found the best sort of middle way in the nineties. Yeah, and I would say eventually. Yeah, I, I would say that um, hands down, Bridges to Babylon is my favorite tour because it had a lot of eclecticism. You did have the vote for a song option. Structure of the set list is great. Mo- probably the best of Mark Fisher's sets, like truly. Mm. Uh, like I love the flame shooting scorpion tail. <laughs> it's like a nod yeah. structure from Command and Conquer. <laughs> I bet you it's because one of Mick's kids was playing it. Oh, that looks good, Jimmy. What's that all about? Um, right. He's now on vinyl, Jimmy Jagger. Or no, it was on vinyl. But yeah, that's, that period to me is very special. That's around the time that I got into it. The videos were always on TV. Uh, the Bridges to Babylon St. Louis DVD, the, the or not, not DVD, um, uh, pay-per-view was yeah. broadcast on CBC for some reason. And I just sat there uh, watching it, uh, drinking uh, Arizona iced tea and eating arrowroot cookies because uh, I was apparently still a five-year-old in 1997. Um, that's the period that I got into it. When I, when, 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 when young uh, young when I'm talking about my connection to the Stones, that's what I'm talking about. You know, the the only one that actually has like a period of my life that I can recall, and that I, you know, it's like the the Madeleine that reminds you of your childhood or whatever. Uh, right. That's that's you know that period. Exile on Main Street is a great record, and I love it, and I've had many great times to it. But it's not the same kind of immediate going right back there. So how this relates to Totally Stripped is that there was a big hole in in that um, period that we never really saw the documentation of. And honestly, there's there was I've almost never had a more surreal experience when relating to a band than when I actually saw how the band performed Dead Flowers and Shine a Light and all those things that I've heard that that are really I mean, most of what's on Stripped is the best version of any of those songs. Um, right. With, a, like, Sweet Virginia, you know, I really do think that the studio version is probably the best that that gets. But 
Um, I do like the way Sweet, Sweet Virginia was done for Stripped. Uh, I think that there are better takes than the one that they used, but by and large, I feel that the arrangements are about as good as they could ever be. That tempo for right. Dead Flowers makes it a little, like, the, one of the only problems, the problem I have with the studio version of Dead Flowers is it's kind of too sleepy and morose and stuff, and like giving it a little bit more energy kind of makes it more fun, and that ba- balances out the cynicism and the the darker elements a little bit more to say nothing right, of the fact the lyric, that yeah. that's probably hands down my favorite guitar solo. Yeah. And, and the thing is that people forget, like people like to sh- on Don Voss for overproducing. So oh yeah. Stuff. It's always yeah. overproducing it's, the stones. But like when it comes to like selecting the best take, I can't fault him for his choices. Like, when he picked the takes he picked for live licks as well, like he made some very strange editing and sequencing choices, but he picked great versions of all those songs. And I would like everyone out there in radio land to remember that live licks won a technical Grammy. And that's not like the regular Grammys where it's just like, Oh, you know, have five, you know, (laughs) the, the, the technical Grammys are, are, are generally, they don't just throw those around. They don't just give them out to every, uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Dog and pony show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, is it clear we don't respect the Grammys? Uh, <laughs> I, I think we should on them for another 20 minutes. Speaking of Don Watson Grammys, though, did you know that Voodoo Lounge won two Grammys? I didn't. Yeah, and so it's that dumbass thing where, like, the Stones aren't relevant and haven't, you know, done anything that, that the industry cared about in forever, except that Voodoo Lounge won two Grammys Bridges to Babylon was the number three album, you know, worldwide without even a, a really smash hit sing, single. Right. But even that, I do remember anybody seeing my baby being on the radio a lot. Everyone does. It it's, wasn't. It's yeah. just crazy that people say, "Well, they haven't done anything relevant." I mean, they wouldn't be playing this stuff on the radio yeah, and yeah. in the if people weren't buying it. I mean, this filled in a big hole in the academic history of the Rolling Stones, and. I think it's an underappreciated period of their writing, and I think that it's an underappreciated period of their performance. One thing that also shocks me about seeing this is that they're all smiling and laughing and goofing around yeah. with each other. And really, there's some lighthearted ribbing. Like, it's not like the acidic sort of asides about how drunk or out of it Keith is from the 70s. It's all like actually like there's lighthearted one, sort of jibes. I think we both picked up on one, though, because at the end of All Down the Line, you can see Keith, he's definitely making some very firm hand gestures. And I think that what he's saying is, Ronnie, you f***ed the ending. And then you can see Ronnie right. about to just be like, no, you f***ed up the ending. But then they pull back to this huge wide shot so you can't actually see that they're yelling at each other. Right. But the the difference is that post-Knighthood, um, like Licks Tour and on, Keith checked mm-hmm. out. He just yeah. doesn't care. I mean, he, 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 is, he has come back. Uh, for the 50 and counting and on, I think. I think he's been really much more together, especially like 14 on fire and everything I've been hearing yeah. about that. They're like, And the zip code show that we saw was like incredible for Keith. Like it was, he had a couple of like shaky moments, but like 95% of the show, he was on top form. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's about as good as you can ask for in a live music scenario and people always find it i always get you know people oh well you know mick jagger doesn't hit every note or sometimes there's a mistake and it's like yeah that's because they're actually a live band you know uh there's and that the whole point of the music isn't to like 
you know, da 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 da. It's not something that's like forced into place. It's something that you let happen, and and that's a big difference about the way that the Stones play rock and roll versus the way that say the Who do. Um, that's very much about like I am imposing my will on the music, whereas the Stones mm. are a conduit. Keith talks about that all the time. He's an antenna. He's a you know, the music just comes through him. And I, I think that that's a much better way to think about it because as much as I believe in intellectual property and copyright law, you are participating in a cultural tradition. And, you know, that is the that is your musical ancestry speaking through you and, and indeed right. your, your culture and your, you know, that, that music, especially blues-based musics, are some of the last oral traditions alive on the planet. And we all know, oh, you know, there's this uncontacted tribe in the Amazon or whatever, but we ignore it in our own society where it really does exist and where it should right. be preserved. And the biggest thing that concerns me is that no one is even going to try to preserve a lot of, um, a lot of uh, stuff from this period because they just think that it's ubiquitous and everywhere. The number mm. of people that I've met who just go wow i i i just can't could never get that chuck berry style down really like you know a guy a guy i know who um i played in the pit band at that theater you don't like the lower ossington one. Oh yeah 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 no um don't go there people <laughs> <laughs> but um I could tell you some stories you know there's a guy who had a degree from humber you know and yeah. he was a very good guitar player and he was way better at playing that material um than I was. But when I showed him those licks, uh, there was a sort of Elvis-type tune, because uh, I was doing uh, Joseph in The Amazing Technicolor. Right. So there's something that's very like Mystery Train, and I was able to do it like Scotty Moore, and the guy's just right. like, holy crap, what is that? And it's like, it's an E chord. <laughs> you know, it's really, I, I, wasn't that, I wasn't that rude, but it's very simple stuff that yeah. seems hard for people because they just haven't, it's all this stuff that's, you know. They haven't well, absorbed it. It's lost to the murky depths yeah. of time. There's, I remember, I remember uh, sitting in the, in the quad and there were some people milling around and I was, had my guitar and I was playing, I was playing Hellhound on my trail. And I was thinking, mm -hmm. somebody's going to come up and say, oh, you're quite a good guitar player for knowing how to play a Robert Johnson song. But it was a fantastic lesson because I learned that it's not just the, difficulty of playing the part or something like that it's the cultural literacy on the part of the audience and when i say cultural literacy i'm not trying to imply that they are dumb for not knowing robert johnson but just that it's not something that's on their radar it doesn't right. mean anything to me but if you go you know uptown funk gonna give it to you the, everybody just jumps in line and rocks their body in time uh sorry well and i think that yeah you you have to be interested and invested enough to know a little bit of the background and the history into those things, or at least have some n knowledge from another source. Like it's not something that our current popular culture inculcates in people. Mm -hmm. It's something that you have to actively seek out and, or, or have somebody else who instructs you on how important it is that these things yeah. led to the current day. No. And I know about this, from my own life because when somebody starts firing out like Eddie Van Halen licks and it's just like, you know, 800 notes, I, I think that that person has, has mastered something that I will never 
mm-hmm. pre- master, and I am I am impressed with their skill, but it doesn't mean as much to me as like one lick in the solo from Sympathy for the Devil, because yeah. it's so much more about timing and the intent behind what you're playing rather than it is the sheer technical exercise of playing as many notes as you can right. in succession. I think people just don't know how to read the stones. Like they, they, right. and there's, there's another element in that people go there and they go, oh, well, it doesn't sound like the record. Well, really, that's not the point. They are a live no. band. Now, we should quickly talk about the mono box set. Absolutely. Because this is another Abco-helmed enterprise. This has nothing to do with the stones themselves. I'm sure if they had any like say in it, this would be a th- an official product, but... They don't have the rights to that material, so here we go again. It's another remaster campaign. I thought they got some of it back at the 40 Licks time. Well, they are... I think they're now sort of getting proper royalties, and so they don't... It doesn't right. really no, no, stand no, no, a reason no. for right. them to they block the, anything. They got the publishing back, but they still don't own, yeah. own those masters. So Abco has, I think about five or six years ago, whenever they put out those two giant vinyl box sets like the the Abco box set and then everything since then, like 71 to the present type thing, Abco remastered everything. Like they had the 2002 Super Audio remaster campaign, which was mostly everything. And then in 2010, they got everything else, like all these mono mixes and stuff that they're now putting out on this new box set. Um, So it's been sitting around for six years, unreleased on physical media. So you have to wonder about the timing. Mm-hmm. For one thing, and now well, they probably uh, just—they're uh, probably just counting on the rumors that the Stones are actually going to be putting out a new record soon. Well, I mean, we know that they are. We know, right? This is exactly what Abco did in the '80s when they put out the singles collection. Oh, the this is Metamorphosis all over again. <laughs> right, Metamorphosis was time to come out with it's only rock and roll when it was like, oh man, the Stones are back after you know three years in the wilderness or whatever. We have a new Stones record. 1989. Oh, the Stones are back. Hmm. Steel Wheels after three years in the wilderness without a Rolling Stones record. And now it's 2016 and we're like, oh, the Stones after are 11 back. years of no new Stones, <laughs> we're getting a new record. So Abco's going to rush out this box set. And I'm not going to buy it for one thing because I have the singles collection, which has most of the mono, like the relevant mono stuff. It's true. Already. You have the weird mono street fighting man on there. Oh my God. No. You have. Nah. You have all the weird, like, single versions that are, you know, relevant. How many versions of Out of Time are there? (laughs) Uh, Too many. (laughs) I don't don't care about getting the cold ending on Tell Me. That's not something that I need in my life. Hey, Bob Dylan really liked that song. But I I do want to get the individual releases because we've never had the mono mix of Aftermath, which is better, and the mono mix of Their Satanic Majesties, which is demonstrably better like Mick Jagger himself I think in the 60s said oh I don't like it in stereo it's bloody awful well aren't should we just tell the the kids at home that you know pretty much anything from before the mid 70s it it's going to sound better in mono yeah and it's not necessarily about whether you know the mix is significantly different it's just that in stereo, they weren't, they didn't really have enough technology to make a convincing soundstage at that period. Yeah. So you're going to get a more convincing glue together instrument and performance mix just by collapsing everything down further. Yeah. And my, through my experimentations at the mono lab here, um, I noticed that you get 
substantial cone filtering and weirdness if you listen to, say, a mono mix from the 50s because it's being played on two speakers. So right. you know, you're going to get some cancellation there, especially on the vocals. Uh, and if you're going to listen to your Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf uh, stuff, turn off one of your speakers. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it'll be night and day for you, I guarantee you. I, I've had a number... And for- for for turntables, if you have a Y cable to take both channels of the turntable and combine it down to one, you're going to reduce the noise on the, the surface noise of the record by 6 dB. Just because of the stereo collapsing down, you get 6 dB more signal in the center and 6 dB less of the side channels, which is just noise. Yeah. Um, so there's an argument to be made that mono is going to sound better, even if it wasn't intended to be yes. played back in mono. And and this leads me to another interesting point, is that when you get to the Motown stuff, they clearly knew that it was going to sound, that, that it was going to be played on both mono and stereo systems. So it does sound good on two speakers, but it also sounds good on, on one. I think it yeah. sounds mm, a little bit better on two because they, they got that like uh, Frank Sinatra wee small hours of the morning thing where it is a mono mix, but you swear you can point to where the instruments are. Sure. And it's got a th- floating in midair type imaging where it's like there's so much information happening across the frequency spectrum that it fools your ear. Yeah, it's in front of you. And we learned, I think, at some point that the best thing to do is just take a flat transfer out of the tape machine. That's yeah, yeah. why XL on Main Street remaster sounds better. You're talking about the Super Audio one, that uh, this SACD Exile that I have on the Blu-ray disc, or about the uh, the deluxe one? Because there's a 2020 one, which is the deluxe box, and then that flat transfer one is the SACD. Okay, right, right, right. So. So the flat transfer is the best one. The 2010 one is also good. It does sound very good, at, especially at low res on streaming sites and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It, it's fine. And people rave about that half-speed version of it that Abbey Road put out on vinyl. And We're I didn't gonna, really like it as much. I we thought can, it was a little the, underwhelming. The, the Bonner-Rinsey campaign is condemning the half-speed mastered XL on Main Street. I mean, strong. I don't, I don't want to say it's bad because like, it does sound acceptable, but... Having heard the flat transfer, I don't want to go back to anything else. Yeah, and you know, acceptable isn't what we're talking about here. You know, it, it, to me, it's simply a matter of accuracy because one of the one of the things that is wrong with the '94 is that there are tape speed issues. Yeah, there were things where guitars that I thought were actually out of tune are actually just being pulled. It's tape drag. Pulled, yeah. yeah, but it seems to me that the 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 remasters that the Stones themselves have approved that are on the the universal reissues and that are now on streaming services are they're mastered to sound like modern mixes even if they are the original mixes they've used as much compression as they can to try and fake a modern sounding mix yeah and i don't actually have as much of a problem with that as people as some people we haven't in Sorry, yeah, sorry we should wrap this up. Um, guests of the Tim Lindsay podcast stay at the <laughs> Toronto Radisson. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, should we just should we just wrap up? Like I, I could. I think so. I think we've ranted and raved enough for like. Yeah, we'll fix it all like, in editing. And Tim has to get back to work. Yeah. I'm sure his cat is missing him. Um, yeah, that too. Thanks for listening, everyone out there in Radio Land. Yeah, I, I appreciate this opportunity to uh, rant about things that probably only we care about, but maybe some of you out there do too. But see, the internet, if the internet has proven anything lately, it's that people with extremely weird opinions are better at get finding each other than ever before. 
That's true. If it weren't about to cause the end of the world, it would be great. <laughs> Make the internet great again, I think, as I think you said to Matt Trotter. <laughs> Thanks again for checking out Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies. You can get in touch with us by sending an email to rollingstonespodcast at gmail.com. If you like this episode, tell your friends about it. And don't forget to subscribe for more episodes. Until the next time we say goodbye. Goodbye.